you will turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, which will be our text for this morning. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other. Watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want, but... If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, 
let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Well, good morning. Good to be here with all of you again on this Lord's Day. Um, Again, uh, I mentioned this last week, you may have seen this in the bulletin uh, this week, but that uh, I'm filling in for Pastor Ken while he's on his riding leave, and so we're taking just a, a brief uh, break from our series in the book of Romans. We've been looking at, for a couple of uh, months now, Romans chapter 5 through 8, and so uh, while I'm filling in for Ken, and we'll complete uh, that filling in next week, next week will be my last um, Sunday in this little mini-sermon series that we're in, but we're taking a break from Romans, New Life in Christ, to take a look at Galatians chapter 5, in which we're calling Freedom in Christ. It's not really a new topic, or at least a completely different topic. It's more so talking about the same thing that we've been talking about for a couple of months now, but just from a different angle. So we're looking at it from the angle of Galatians, and in particular, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 5. This week, we're going to look more closely at verses 13 to 15. Even though uh, Pastor Leo read the whole chapter, which I asked him to do, we're only going to take a look at verses 13 to 15 today. And then next week, we'll take a look at verse 16 and on through the end of the chapter. So that's where we're going. Freedom in Christ. Uh, Before we take a closer look at our text for this morning... Let's just bow for a moment and let's ask God for his help. Father, we are reliant on you uh, this morning. We recognize that what we're about to do, take a look at your word and study it and um, attempt to understand it for the sake of applying it to our lives and allowing it to shape us, that this cannot happen unless you are working in and through us. And so we, this morning, want to confess our reliance on you and ask that you would work in us, Lord. So this morning, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say to us for our good, for the sake of Christ, we pray these things in his name, amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, uh, we looked at the first 12 verses of Galatians chapter 5, and what we saw was that the reason that Christ came to this earth to set us free was for the sake of freedom. He set us free in order that we might be free. He set us free for freedom. And within the context of Galatians chapter 5, what we saw was that this freedom includes the freedom from having to rely on anything other than our faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit to provide us with what we need for our Christian lives. By faith and through the Spirit, we have what we need for the Christian life. That's freedom. And that's true whether we're talking about our initial entrance into the Christian life, or whether we're talking about growing in the Christian life, or whether we're talking about one day finishing the the Christian life, completing the race, having crossed the finish line, All of it is a result of faith in Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit in our lives. That's freedom. That's the freedom for which we have been set free. Which means that our Christian lives are not the result of our works. 
but the result of God's grace alone. But there's a temptation here when we hear that. Hearing Paul talk about this grace which makes the Christian life possible can result in a common misunderstanding, something that Paul dealt with on a regular basis in the early church. In fact, we saw it in our study of Romans chapter 6. And that misunderstanding, that temptation is this, that if we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and through the work of the Spirit and not by our works, and if we are sustained in our Christian life by our faith and through the work of the Spirit and not by our works, which is all true, then what we do with our lives must not really matter to God. God must not care about what we do with our lives. I mean, after all, if our relationship with God is based solely on the provision of his grace, and it is, and not on the efficacy of our works, which it's not, well then, God must not care about what we do with our lives. And so, sometimes we hear Paul talk about freedom, and we think, well, that must mean freedom to do what I want with my life. But the reality is that God does care about what we do. And he does want this freedom for which we've been set free to impact the way that we live our lives. But it's not for the reasons that we might think. It's not because what we do will result in more of God's love for us as Christians, or what we fail to do will result in less of God's love for us as Christians. That's not why God cares about what we do. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, God's love has been made secure by your faith in Jesus Christ and through the work of his spirit. Which means our works do not control the throttle to God's care or his love or his favor toward us. That is made secure by faith in Jesus and God's gift of his spirit in our lives. Rather, the reason that God cares about what we do with our lives is because God intends that the life of freedom, the life for which Christ has set us free, should result in a certain kind of life. It should result in a certain kind of person. It should produce a certain kind of life in a certain kind of person. That's why God cares about what we do. So the question for us this morning is this. How do we know if we've come to truly experience this life of freedom? How do we know? What are the signs or the evidences or the results of a life lived within this gospel of freedom? How do we know if we've come to experience that life? Well, in verses 13 through 15 of Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us what a life of freedom ought to look like and what it ought to result in, the kind of person that it should produce. He's going to tell us in verses 13 to 15, our text for this morning. But before he does that, before he gets into the, the details, he first wants us to remember that the freedom for which we've been set free comes from God. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Notice what he says. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. You see, by starting off, verse 13, reminding us of our calling, Paul wants us to remember that this calling 
comes from the one who calls us. It comes from God. It originates with God. And if it originates with God, then how we respond to this freedom, what we do with it, it ought to align with God's purposes. It ought ought to align with his intentions for that life of freedom. And Paul does this by reminding us that we've been called and that this calling comes from God. One of my favorite definitions of freedom comes from uh, actually a Christian apologist. And he puts it this way. He says, freedom is understanding why God designed you and the ability to live out that freedom. Freedom is understanding why God designed you and the ability to live it out. That's freedom. So, for example, he says, says, uh, take a piano. We have a piano up here. A piano was designed for a specific purpose. There's There's a design behind that piano. But two people can approach the piano, and one person can say, I'm free to do whatever I want to this piano. I can stand on it. I can sit on it. I can have my breakfast on it. I can take a bat, and I can smash it up. I'm free to do whatever I want to this piano. But another person can approach that same piano, and he can say, yeah, but I know what this piano was designed for, and I've cultivated the ability to play it according to its design." Well, in that situation, the person who's truly free is the person who knows why that piano was designed and has the ability to play it accordingly. Not the person who says, I can do whatever I want to the piano. I can smash it up. That person isn't actually free. And in the same way, Paul says that God has a very specific design for our freedom, the life for which we've been set free, and that we ought to respond to that design accordingly. That's what he says by reminding us of this calling. But for some of us, like the Galatian believers that Paul is writing to, we can hear Paul talk about freedom, and we can sometimes think, well, that must be freedom to do what I want. But Paul says that freedom wasn't designed for that. It wasn't designed to result in a life just lived for self. Again, verse 13. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Paul says the freedom for which Christ has set us free wasn't designed for a life of living for ourselves. That's not what it's for. It wasn't designed for that. It wasn't designed for a life of selfish indulgence, of just consuming people and things for our own selfish purposes. He says that's not what freedom was designed for. Now the word that Paul uses here in verse 13, which the 1984 edition of the NIV translates as the sinful nature, the word is actually flesh. So if you have the new NIV or the ESV, it'll use that word flesh. And in verse 13, that word refers to that sinful selfish impulse within all of us that causes us to want to turn inward on ourselves and to become self-focused. That's the flesh, the desire to live for self, to make this life about me, myself, and I. Now it's true that Christians have ultimately been delivered from the dominion, from the control of the flesh, 
We learned that in our study of Romans. We have been delivered from the dominion and the, the tyranny of the flesh, but the reality is that the flesh still has influence on us. It doesn't control us anymore. We don't have to obey it, but it still calls to us. It still tempts us. A helpful illustration to kind of understand this reality, the reality that we have ultimately been redeemed from the power of the flesh, and yet that it can still have some influence on us, is to picture a prisoner of war camp. Picture a prisoner of war camp. Now, if you're a prisoner in that camp, well, you're under the enemy's control, right? You are a prisoner. You're under their authority. But if someone comes in and they break you out of that prison, you're no longer under the enemy's control. You're no longer a prisoner. You're no longer under their authority. But there's still one problem. You're still in enemy territory. You're still within enemy lines. And until you finally escape across friendly lines and you get to allied territory, the enemy's still going to be looking for you. And they want to recapture you. And Paul says, in a similar way, though Christians have ultimately been redeemed from the dominion and the tyranny of that flesh, we're still in enemy territory. On this side of eternity, the flesh still wants to recapture us, bring us back to that prison for which Christ set us free. And so Paul, here in verse 13, he says that the freedom to which we've been called wasn't meant for a life of indulging the flesh. We've been freed from that prison. It wasn't meant for a life of just turning inward on ourselves and making this life all about us. We have been freed from that prison. To go back to that life, that's to go back to slavery. That's to willingly put ourselves back under enemy control. See, what Paul says to us in verse 13 is clear. He says that when we as Christians fail to recognize and to live out God's design for our freedom, we actually surrender that freedom. We willingly give it up when we fail to recognize and to live in light of God's freedom. I mean, it might look like freedom for Christians to live their lives uh, solely devoted to pursuing their own interests in life and their own dreams and making ambitions in life, and they just will commit their lives to doing that. That might look like freedom, but Paul says that's, that's not freedom. That's not what freedom was designed for, to live this life, to just pursue your ambitions and your dreams. Now, those things aren't necessarily wrong so long as they have God-honoring ends and purposes, but that's not the freedom that he's talking about in Galatians chapter 5. It might look like freedom for us to surround ourselves with all kinds of earthly comforts and to spend our lives amassing as much wealth as we can and to pursue a life of glamour and ease, but that's not freedom. That's not what it was about. That's not why Christ set us free, so that we could live our lives indulging our own desires. That's a life of slavery. So Paul says, look, the freedom that I'm talking about here that Christ set us free for, to live in, that freedom wasn't designed to result in a life just lived for yourself. Freedom was designed to result in a life 
live for other people. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. You see, Paul says that the reason that God called us into relationship with himself, the reason that he redeemed us in the first place, the reason that he gave us his spirit was not so that we would live out our lives serving and pursuing our own interests, but so that we would live out our lives serving and pursuing the interests of others. Paul says that's true freedom. Freedom to serve others. That's what we were set free for which is precisely what Jesus taught us. By his life and through his teachings, this is what he taught us. There was no one freer than Jesus. No one on this earth has ever been freer than Jesus, and yet Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he came to us in the form of a servant. And he said to his disciples on more than one occasion, he said, I am among you as one who serves. And whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, well, they must be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew chapter 20. You see, Paul and Jesus are in agreement with each other. That true freedom and loving service, they go hand in hand. These are not contradictory. They go hand in hand. In fact, uh, I was telling my ABF this morning, the Greek construction literally reads, in love, act as slaves toward one another. You've been freed to act as a slave toward one another. That's what you've been freed for, a life of slavery to one another. In fact, for Paul, the Apostle Paul, he assumes that the life of freedom will result, it will lead to, it will give rise to a life of serving others. That's his assumption. But the question is why? Why does Paul assume that? Why does he assume that this life of freedom for which we've been set free, why does he assume that that life will result in a life of serving others? Why? Couldn't it result in a life of just serving myself, just doing what I want with life, pursuing my own ambitions, my own dreams, regardless of what it does to anybody else, regardless if it's on God's agenda? Why does Paul assume that this life of freedom will result in a life of serving others? Well, the reason has to do with what Paul assumes about the nature of faith. We talked about this briefly last week, And he mentions it in verse 6. Look at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You see, Paul assumes that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we see by faith what Christ has done, our lives can't help but issue forth in a life of love. That's what faith does. It creates people who love others. That's the nature of faith. It results in people who love one another. And the reason has to do 
with gratitude. Now, Paul doesn't say this explicitly, but it's there. He assumes it. It has to do with gratitude. You see, Paul assumes that when we perceive by faith what God has done for us in Christ, our hearts can't help but be filled up with love, can't help but be filled up with gratitude for the Savior. And out of that fullness, our love for others will overflow. Because only a heart that's filled with love for the Savior, only a heart that's full, can overflow in love for others. A heart that's empty, a heart that's just indulging the flesh, that heart has nothing to overflow. It cannot overflow in love toward others. Here's how Pastor Brian Chappell explains this powerful dynamic. He says, without sentimentalism or apology, our Savior and his messengers advocate a chemistry of grateful hearts that is stronger than the math of calculating minds. God's great grace toward us fosters such love for him that we want to please and honor him. His mercy toward us stirs such overwhelming thanksgiving in us that we desire to live for him. Love compels us. How strong is this compulsion? Nothing is stronger. This is not simply a schmaltzy appeal to emotions. The most powerful human motivation is love. Guilt is not stronger. Fear is not stronger. Gain is not stronger. What drives a mother back into a burning building? It's love for her children. And such love is stronger than self-protection. It's stronger than self-promotion or self-preservation. Such love finds its highest satisfaction and its greatest fulfillment in protecting, promoting, and preserving its object. A Christian for whom love of God is the highest priority is also the person most motivated and enabled to serve the purposes of God. That's what faith does. And the purposes for which God has designed this life of freedom that you've been set free to live the purposes for the purpose of serving others. But as Chapel explains and as Paul assumes, only a heart that has been filled with love for the Savior can live out that design. And that's what faith does. It gives us the ability to see what Christ has done, and in response we are filled with gratitude for him, and we love others. You see, the verdict is in. A heart that serves others is a sign of a heart that's full and free. But a heart that can serve only itself, that can only turn inward on itself, is a heart that's not living in freedom. But Paul has more to say about this life of freedom. He says that this life of serving others, this life of freedom, it doesn't just reveal the status of our hearts, it actually fulfills the law. Look at verse 14. He says, for the entire law is summed up, or really is fulfilled, in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul here, in verse 14, he actually quotes from Leviticus 19.18, the love command, And he says that the very thing that the law was intended to do, which was to create a people who love others, who love their neighbors, he says it's actually the life of freedom that accomplishes that. 
The life of freedom is what brings about that purpose of the law. You see, by quoting this command, Leviticus 19.18, Paul has two primary objectives that he wants the Galatians to, to see. The first is he wants to show them that the life of freedom, which results in a life of serving others, it does what the law was intended to do. It creates people who love others. And in this way, it brings it to its fulfillment. It completes what the law was always supposed to do. And so he's telling the Galatians this to say, hey, you don't need to put yourselves under the law again. You don't need to go there. Well, why don't I need to go there, Paul? Because the life of freedom does what the law was always supposed to do. Create a people who love others. You don't need to put yourselves under the law anymore. The second reason, the second purpose that he has for quoting this command is because he wants to give us some substance. He wants to give us some guidelines for what it looks like to serve one another in love. The law, the commandment says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not a command to actively love ourselves. This is not modern-day self-talk. He's not saying love yourself. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually assuming that we already do. He's assuming that we already look out for our own interests. Instead, this is a command to take that natural, already existing self-love and to make it the measuring rod for how we love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul, by quoting this command, he's saying that the way that we ought to serve one another is the way that we would want to be served. Which means, among other things, praying for other people the way that you would want them to pray for you. It means making time in our busy schedules for other people the way that we would want them to make time for us. It means welcoming and greeting someone in church the way that we would want to be welcomed or greeted in church. It means sharing Christ with someone the way that we would want them to share Christ with us, assuming we didn't know him. Paul's saying, serve one another in love as yourselves. The way that you want to be served, serve one another. That's God's design for this life for which he sets you free for. And so Paul says that this life of freedom results in a life of serving others. But sometimes, like the Galatians, we have a tendency of losing sight of this. And so Paul gives us a warning in verse 15. He says, if we won't serve one another, we'll do the opposite. We'll destroy one another. Verse 15, he says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, or really it says, if you, if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. There are real consequences to not living this life of freedom. There are real consequences to not serving one another in love. And those consequences, Paul says, are the exact opposite of God's design for us. But that's what happens when we fail and we lose sight of what it means to live in freedom, to serve one another. We instead will bite and will devour one another. So there's a question for us. We might all be thinking, I know as I was preparing for this and thinking through 
the sermon, this was on my mind. What do we do if we find that we're not serving others in love the way that we know we ought to? What do we do? What if we look at ourselves, examine ourselves, and we say, man, I, I'm not loving people the way that God's called me to. What do we do? Well, the first thing to do is to recognize that growing in love is a lifelong process. This is not something that happens overnight, and we're not talking about perfection, instantaneous sanctification. There's a reason why we call it progressive sanctification. Growing in love takes a lifelong of walking with Jesus, and the longer that we walk with Jesus, we will love one another the way that we ought to. So that's the first thing to do, is to recognize that growing in love is a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. Second thing to do is to recognize that growing in love is ultimately a matter of faith. It's not ultimately a matter of doing more, or of trying harder, or being more disciplined in our love. That's not ultimately what it's about. That might have a part to play, but it's not ultimately what it's about. It's a matter of perceiving by faith what God has done for us in Christ, and being filled with love for the Savior as a result of that seeing. Because only a heart that's full can overflow in love toward others. It's a matter of faith, ultimately. It's a matter of perceiving what Christ has done for us, which we will do in just a moment in communion. Have an opportunity to be reminded of what he has done for us. The third thing to do is to recognize that growing in love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit. This is not something that we do in our own strength. We don't produce love within us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But that's next week's sermon. We'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in our lives to do in us what we are incapable of doing ourselves. So for now, recognize that the very thing that God commands us to do, he supplies us with. He demands us and commands us to love others, and then he gives us what we need to do that. He gives us a faith to perceive what the Savior has done for us, and in turn, that emboldens us to love others, and then he gives us his spirit to produce love in us. What God demands from us, he provides to us. Well, one scholar reflecting on this incredible provision of God, this grace of God, he tells the story of a man named Jim. He says, some time ago, I had the privilege of visiting a senior board member of Covenant Seminary in the hospital. Jim was dying of cancer, and he knew it. When the cancer was first discovered, Jim said to me with a smile, I always wondered how the father would take me home. He had an absolute trust in the goodness of his God, no matter what the difficulty. But still, Jim's dealing with the cancer was never a matter of resignation. Far from it, he was in a race. And Jim raced to finish a book on the history of his family and his family business that recounted the grace of God in his life. He didn't write because he believed that this writing would make God love him more, but because he was so filled with a loving zeal for the Savior. 
Jim entitled his book, Nothing Happened by Accident. He deeply believed that the caring character of God revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was operative in every stage of life. I've never met a man more zealous for the honor of this Savior, nor more certain of his cause, the cause of his zeal. Jim believed that his best works merited him nothing, and that God had saved him from his sin solely for mercy's sake. And out of his thankfulness for God's grace, Jim served. He served on the boards of numerous Christian organizations. He dedicated his business to God's glory. He witnessed to fellow businessmen one-on-one for years in personal discipleship programs. And then finally, toward the end of his life, he raced against the clock to record the mighty acts of God in his life. Jim did not believe any of these deeds would gain him one more ounce of God's love That is not why he so zealously gave his life to God's service. Jim threw himself into the service of God with such energy and joy because he so loved the God who saved him through faith in a great mercy not of human origin. Gratitude compelled him. It compelled him to serve his God and the resultant joy that radiated from his heart made it obvious to everyone that though he was dying, This was one of the most well persons that you could ever hope to meet. Faith in God's mercy brought joy through the tears. It always does. May each of us learn to embrace this faith that is the health of our souls, the joy of our hearts, and the truest source of Christian obedience. Well, like Jim, when we perceive, when we truly see by faith the freedom for which God's love has set us free, our hearts can't help but overflow in love toward others. Let's pray this morning about that. Father, by your grace and your mercy, would you give us eyes to see? By faith, perceiving what Christ has done for us on the cross and all that that has accomplished on our behalf, do you give us eyes to see this truth and that in return it would cause our hearts to well up with love, gratitude for you. Because of that love and that gratitude that we would in turn love others because our hearts must But we look to you this morning to give us those eyes of faith. And as we prepare ourselves to receive communion this morning and to be reminded of your work uh, through Christ, we pray that you would use these next several minutes together as we observe together the Lord's communion, that you would use these next minutes to fuel our faith, to reignite our faith, Help us to see clearly what Christ has done. Pray these things for our good and for the sake of Christ. Amen.